You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. We began a new series last week here at Whitefields in which we are looking at the parables that Jesus told. Um, about one-third of all that Jesus spoke that's recorded in the Bible is in the form of parables, which were short stories, illustrations that were packed with meaning. And so for the next couple of weeks here at Whitefields, we're going to be looking at some of these parables that Jesus taught, and we're going to be unpacking them and considering them and considering what God wants to speak to us through them. So we're going to begin this morning by reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent for a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and they also wounded and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What then shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will crush him. This is God's word. There was a little boy. He was four years old, and his dad found him in the kitchen one day, sitting over the table, you know, very intently focused on what he was working on, a piece of paper, and he had some kind of writing utensil in his hand. He was drawing a picture, and his dad asked him, what are you drawing? And the boy said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the dad said, well, son, I mean, come on. I mean, nobody's, that, that's cute and all, but nobody's ever seen God. I mean, there's no one in the whole world who knows what God looks like. And the son says, well, in just about one minute, they will, right? He's going to fix that problem. Good for them that he's drawing this picture. He's going to show people what God, God is like. In other words, here's the thing. Illustrations are important. Pictures are helpful. Pictures help us to see things clearly, especially abstract things. It helps us when we can get a concrete example that we can tie an abstract concept to. And that's what the parables are all about. Jesus was a master at using illustrations and word pictures to teach people. We call them parables, right? They were short stories which were packed with a lot of meaning. The word parable really means to compare two things. It means to put two things side by side and to compare them. And that's why when Jesus tells the parables, usually they begin with this phrase, the kingdom of God is like this. He's holding two things up side by side and comparing them. Jesus used parables as a way of taking concepts that were abstract and and complex and making them understandable to the common person, giving a way that you could grasp it and putting it in terms that you and I could understand, whether those were terms of, of things like farming or gardening, business, or even just an invitation to dinner. These are things that everybody can understand and relate to. And so Jesus would give these illustrations and draw these word pictures in order to give concrete descriptions 
of cosmic truths, of spiritual truths. Today we're going to be looking at two parables, actually. The first is the one that I read to you from Luke chapter 20. It's the parable of the tenants. That parable is found in three places, three different gospels. But in the gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to be studying it, is it's immediately followed by another parable, which is called the parable of the wedding feast. So we're going to be looking at these two parables together because their messages go together. As you'll see, both parables are about ownership. What is ours and what is God's? And what does that mean for us and how we should live? Another thing that's common in these parables is they talk about God sending messengers and how we respond to those messengers whom God sends. So the title of today's message is, What's Mine? is yours. What's mine is yours. You'll understand what that means as we go on. In these parables, there are three big things that we're going to focus on as we look at these two parables. First of all, tenants who act like owners. Tenants who act like owners. Secondly, how do you respond to the messengers God sends you? And thirdly, we're going to talk about why what you wear could be the most important decision you ever make. So, tenants who act like owners How do you respond to the messengers God sends you and why what you wear could be the most important decision you ever make? Let's talk about tenants who act like owners. I just read to you the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants begins like this. There's a man, he he is a master of a house, he's a landowner, and he plants a vineyard. And Matthew gives us a few more details that are not in the account that I read to you from the Gospel of Luke. Matthew tells us that not only did this man purchase this vineyard and plant this vineyard. He also put in some infrastructure. He put a fence around the vineyard. He put a wine press in it. He built a tower on it. And then it says that he leased it out to some tenants. So what is the relationship between the tenants and the master of the house, the owner? It's that the master is the owner of the vineyard and the tenants are paid employees, basically. They're being paid to tend the vineyard for him. They're employees, The owner put in the investment, he did the initial work of planting and putting in infrastructure, and then he hired the tenants to manage it. Now, most of us here can probably relate to this. Either you work for a company as an employee, or you own a company and maybe you have some employees, but whether you are an employee or you have employees, we all tend to basically understand the employer-employee relationship and how that works. The employee is hired by the employer And he's paid a wage, he or she is paid a wage, in order to do a particular task and to do it in a particular way. So as employees, these tenants have a responsibility, an obligation to the owner of the vineyard to tend it for him. And and for him means this, they need to tend it, number one, by his word, and number two, for his profit. Okay, so by his word means they can't just do whatever they want. They're the employees. They have to do it according to the owner's policies and and expectations. Secondly, they have to do it for his profit, which means that like in any business, they're going to get paid to do their job, but the profits and the deficits, whatever ends up happening, the profits and the deficits belong to the owner. Now, the problem that arises in this story is this. The tenants begin to act like they own the vineyard. That's the problem. Whenever the owner sends a messenger to them to get their attention or to request what is rightfully his, the tenants refuse to give it. They either ignore the message or they mistreat the messengers. In fact, their treatment of the messengers gets 
increasingly harsh and severe as the story goes on. The first one who gets sent, they just beat him up and send him back. The second one, they kill. And then the third one, it says that they kill him in a particularly brutal way. It says that they captured him and they stoned him to death. They threw rocks at him until he died. I mean, that's very brutal. Until the owner finally sends his own son, his beloved son. He says, surely they will listen to him. Surely they will respect him. And not only, though, do the tenants not listen to him, but they mistreat him. And they kill him in cold blood in the hopes that by killing him, they can take ownership of the vineyard for themselves. The first group that this parable was spoken to, who's Jesus speaking to as he's giving this parable? It was the religious leaders of Israel. In the Old Testament, the prophets referred to Israel, the the nation, as God's vineyard, the vineyard of God. And and it painted this picture that God had planted Israel as a vineyard and he had put in the infrastructure, right? He had given them the infrastructure of his word and the temple and the religious system and the commandments. And the religious leaders of Israel were the tenants, right? They, They were given a job. Their job was to govern Israel, number one, by God's word, not just according to their own thoughts and ideas of what they should do. And secondly, they were to do it for God's glory, not for their own profit or fame. And so this parable is, first of all, directed to them, to the religious leaders of Israel. And they very much understand that. If you're following along here in Matthew chapter 21, look at verse 45. It says this, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that Jesus was speaking about them. So very clearly, that's who he's talking to, and they understand. And that's why it says in verse 46 that because they understood of what Jesus was saying and that he was saying it to them, they wanted to arrest him and kill him right there on the spot, but they didn't do it because they, were, they knew that the crowds loved Jesus and they were afraid of how the crowds would respond. What Jesus was telling these religious leaders was that they had not been acting according to God's word, and they had not been acting for God's glory. Rather, they had been acting according to their own ideas and they had been doing it for their own profit. And even though God had sent them messenger after messenger, they had ignored the messages that God had been trying to send to them and trying to speak to them and they had refused to change. Those messengers had come in many different forms. The most obvious form, of course, there were prophets who were literal messengers from God. But there were other ways that God tried to send them a message and they knew that. One of the ways, if you read the Old Testament, it was one of the ways that God tried to get their attention and send them a message was by allowing them to be overtaken by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and carried off into captivity. It was a wake-up call for them. But rather than taking heed to these messages, they ignored them. And they beat the prophets and they killed them. And they didn't change their ways. And so Jesus tells this story of the tenants and the owner. And at the end of the story, before the religious leaders pick up that Jesus is actually talking about them, Jesus asks them, what would you guys do in a situation like this? What would you do if you were an owner and your employees didn't manage your business the way that you had asked them to, and then they mistreated the messengers you sent them, and then they even killed your own son? What would you do? And they say, very interestingly in verse uh, 41, they said, he should put those wretches to death. That's what they say. Little do they realize they're speaking their own Right? Judgment, right? He should put those wretches to what kind of death? A miserable death. And let out the vineyard to tenants who will give him the fruits in the seasons. And Jesus says, well, that's interesting because this story is actually about you guys. And he reminds them of this verse from Psalm 118. It's actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And here's what it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
What is this verse talking about? This verse is actually interesting because it's referring to an event, right? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What that's talking about is an event which is actually not found in the Bible because it's kind of a folklore, you could say. It's Jewish tradition about an event that happened during the building of the tabernacle. We don't know if it really happened or not, but it's part of Jewish folklore. It's something that they all knew. And uh, here's the story, and we do know this part is true. In 1 Kings chapter 6, we read how when the temple was built, all of the stones for the temple were prepared beforehand at the quarry. They were all cut to size, and then they were transported to the temple mount where they were then assembled into place. But the story goes, the tradition, the folklore goes, that when the stones were brought to the temple mount to be assembled, that the builders, the assemblers, they found one stone that was oddly shaped. It didn't seem to fit in with the other stones. And they didn't know, well, what are we supposed to do with the stone? It's kind of like when you're building the Ikea furniture and there's this one piece and you have no idea what it's for. So you just say, well, I guess I'll just throw it out. And so that's what they did. They said, we've got this extra parts and stuff. We don't know where this piece is supposed to go. So they took it and they rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley. If you've ever heard that name, that you know, it, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and right below it, there's a creek that runs through. It's the Kidron Creek. And the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Valley traditionally has been the trash dump for the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's not anymore, but in antiquity it was because, you know, at that time they didn't have landfills and stuff like that. And so what they would do is they'd take all their trash and they'd throw it down the hill into the valley. And that's you know, if you've been to developing countries, you're very familiar. They still do the same thing, right? They just roll the trash down the hill. So the Kidron Valley was always the trash heap for the, the city of Jerusalem. They would set it on fire sometimes and burn up all the trash. But anyway, here's what happened. They took this stone that didn't fit, and they said, well, it's extra parts, I guess. So they just rolled it down the hill to get rid of it, and they threw it down into the Kidron Valley, into the trash heap for the city. Later on, though, the builders realized that that stone that they had thrown away was actually the cornerstone of the temple, and that's why it didn't fit, right? And so this story is what is being referred to here in Psalm 118. And now Jesus is drawing on it himself, and he's saying, guys, listen, I am the cornerstone, and you guys are dangerously close to rejecting me. Jesus is saying, guys, in that parable, the son, remember the owner sends his own beloved son to give them the final message? That's me, guys. I am the son. And, and what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me now? I am the cornerstone. And he says, and here's the thing about the cornerstone. Anyone who falls on the cornerstone will be broken to pieces. But anyone on whom it falls, they will be crushed and scattered like dust. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this, and it's important that we understand it. It's a message that all of us need to hear. You can either be broken now, or you can be crushed later. That's the message. You can either be broken now, or you can be crushed later. You can either be broken now by casting yourself upon Jesus in humility and brokenness, admitting that you have fallen short, that you haven't always lived up to God's standards, and that you need a Savior to save you. That requires brokenness and humility to come to that place and cast yourself before God and say, I need the cornerstone. I need Jesus to save me. You can either be broken now or you can be crushed later when he falls upon you in judgment as the righteous judge of all the earth. Now, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. 
But the message of this parable speaks to all of us, and it's absolutely critical that you and I understand it. The message of the parable for you and me is this. Look at your life. Look at your life and understand this. You are a tenant, not an owner. You are a tenant. You're not the owner. And the problem comes when we who are tenants begin to act as if we're the owners. You know, you in your life, whoever you are, you have been given all sorts of things. You've been given talents, abilities, skills. You've been given material possessions and finances. You've been given relationships and you've been given a physical body. Some of you have a spouse. Some of you have children. Your life is like a vineyard that was planted and designed and cultivated by God. And you are not the owner of it. He's the owner of it. You are a tenant. Those things that you have, everything that you have, it's been given to you by God. And therefore, you can't just use it any old way you want, right? You have a responsibility, an obligation, number one, to use the things that he's given you by his word, and number two, for his profit. But like in the parable, the problem is that the tenants, rather than honoring the owner, they start acting like they own the vineyard. And not only do they try to ignore the, the owner when he sends them messages, but they eventually seek to cast him off completely and take ownership of the vineyard for themselves. And you see, that is a picture of us. It's a picture of all of us as, as human beings. The natural tendency of the human heart is that deep down, we all know that there is a God that we have to answer to, but we don't want to. We, we try to ignore him or cast him off completely. Romans 8 verse 7 says that the natural mind is hostile towards God. Hostile towards God. That means that you're not just, it's not just that you don't care. You're, you're actually, there's a resentment that we harbor in our hearts towards God because we realize that we owe him an answer. We have to answer to him, but we, would, we don't really want to. Right? Romans chapter 1, Paul says that as people, we know things about God, but we try to suppress those things that we innately know about God because we don't like the implications of it. Why? Because the implication is this, that if God made us, if God sustains us and created us, and he created us for his purposes, that means that when it comes to our lives, we're tenants, not owners. And it means that we're accountable to God for how we live and what we do with the things that we've been given. And we don't really necessarily always like that, right? We don't necessarily want to have to answer to God. And, and there's a way in which we almost resent the fact that God is the master because that means that we aren't the, we aren't the master. And, and remember, though, first of all, let me insert this. Who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the religious leaders of Israel. These are people who go to church, right? These are people who consider themselves religious people. And what that tells us is that even religious people harbor some degree of resentment in their heart towards God sometimes because we hate the idea of a God who won't let us be in control. And so that's the first message of this parable for us to take note of and consider for ourselves. You're not the owner of your life. God is. You are a tenant. Everything you have has been given to you by God and as a result of that, you have an obligation, number one, to do those things and to use those things according to his word and secondly, to do them for his profit. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says something that's so important for us to understand in this regard. It says that God created all things, and all things were created by him. But not only that, all things were created for him. So all things were created by him and for him. 
And if that's true, then what that means is that the purpose of your life is much bigger than just your personal fulfillment or your peace of mind or even your happiness. The purpose of your life, the reason that you're here on this earth is bigger than just your family or your career or your dreams or your ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on earth, you've got to start with God. He's the one who created you. You were made by him and you were made for him. The reason why people get confused about the meaning of life is that we usually begin at the wrong place. We start out in the wrong spot by asking the wrong questions. We start out by thinking about ourselves and asking questions like, what do I want to be? What, What do I want for my life? But see, those questions, they won't reveal, they they reveal the fact that we just don't get it. We don't get it. We're tenants who are trying to act like owners, thinking that God exists for us and that, that we can use him for our purposes when really it's the exact opposite way around. You were created by him and you were created for him. He's the owner and you're the tenant. And so all of us need to come to this place where we say to God, God, what's mine is yours. Everything I have, whatever it is. Let me ask you this, have you come to that place yet where you say to God, God, what's mine is yours. Everything I have, I received it from you and I received it in order to use it for you by your word and for your profit, for your glory and for your purposes and for your desires. The second point here, we're gonna tie these all up in the end, but let's move on to the second point. How do you respond to the messengers God sends you? How do you respond to to the messengers God sends you. We've looked at this parable, the first one. Now we're going to look at the second one. Now again, one of the things that these two parables have in common is that they both talk about God sending messengers. And in both of these parables, we see that God sends multiple messengers to the people. And what that reminds us of is this incredible fact that God in his mercy never gives us just one chance. God in his mercy never gives us just one chance. He says, I will... Not leave myself without witness in your life. So he repeatedly sends messengers into our lives to get our attention, to speak to us, and to call us to himself. And so the question is, number one, what are the messengers that God has been sending into your life? And number two, how are you responding to the messengers that God has been sending you? Let's read this next parable. So Matthew chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus again spoke to them in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. I love the fact that in this parable, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wedding feast. I love that fact because I like weddings. I think there's no greater party than a wedding. In fact, if any of you know of any weddings that are happening soon, see what you can do to get me invited because I'll go. I don't care if I know the people. I just want to be there. I like weddings. They're the best parties around. I went to a wedding recently. Uh for a family from our church here, I was having a great time, right? Food, cake, it was awesome. It's always awesome, right? But then something happened that I wasn't prepared for, the father-daughter dance. It just destroyed me because I've got two little girls now and it just wrecked me watching this father-daughter dance. I wasn't expecting it to have this effect on me. But here I am, I'm watching this father-daughter dance and I realized that one day, my little girls are going to grow up and some guy's going to take them and he's going to take them away from me and I'm going to have to say goodbye to him and send them off and I don't want to do that. And so as this father-daughter dance is happening, I kind of had to hide actually because here's the thing, I don't cry very often 
But when I do cry, my wife gets really excited about it, probably because I don't cry very often. And she's like, she's like a little bit too into it, you know? She makes a big deal out of it. And so I didn't want her to notice that I was getting tears in my eyes. So I kind of had to hide myself a little bit. And then afterwards, I pretended like I got to go to the bathroom, you know, and do something or fix the car or something like that, right? Change the oil. I got to go change the oil right now, honey. Uh, so anyway, I went out in the other room and uh, my older daughter was in another room playing with some friends, and I asked her, you know, to come and give me a hug, and she was like, no, I'm playing. What do you want? Like, <laughs> do something else. I'm busy. Anyway, I don't, I don't know, but I just want you to know, I love weddings, and I love that the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wedding because there's no greater party than a wedding. It's a time of joy and excitement and celebration and looking forward. And it's a, it's a time where you kind of pull out the stops, right? Where money isn't an issue. And not only that, it says that this was not just any wedding. This was a wedding that was thrown by a king, a royal wedding. Have you ever seen a royal wedding on TV? How many of you remember back in the day staying up all night so you could watch Princess Diana walk down the, down the aisle at the church, you know, in, in London it happened at like, I don't know, 2, 3 in the morning here in the U.S. But people stayed up all night so they could watch it on live TV. What about Prince William and Kate Middleton just recently? Royal weddings are a big deal. And for a royal wedding, they pull out all the stops. I mean, money is not an issue. It's elaborate. Only the best and a lot of it in abundance all the best things in abundance. So the king's son is getting married and the king is throwing a party. This is gonna be the party to end all parties. And it says in verse three, so the king sent his servants and they went to call those who had been invited to come to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now that's weird, right? Because for an event like this, invitations would have been sent out months in advance. Not only to mention, this is a royal wedding. This is news. This is national news. This is an event. So it's not like these people didn't know about this event that was going to be happening. It's not like they forgot. They chose not to come. They chose to disregard and ignore this invitation. It says in verse 4, Again, the king sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, the fattened calf has been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Now it's been said that the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. I'll say it again. The only thing worse than hatred is indifference. And the reason is, Right, well, think about this first. In the first parable, what we see is that the tenants resented the owner. They resented the fact that he was the owner and not them. But in this parable, we see a different thing. Rather than open hatred and resentment, we see indifference. The king has invited them to this great feast. He prepared everything for them. He's done all the work to make everything ready, and they just don't care. You know, when you're angry at someone or resentful towards someone, at least you're interacting with them, right? At least you care that they exist and you're expressing that you care that they exist even if you don't like them. But when you're indifferent to someone, you're essentially saying, I don't care that you even exist. As far as I'm concerned, you don't even exist, right? Did you ever watch American Idol back when Simon Cowell was on it? We used to watch it even when we lived in Hungary. We'd watch American Idol and Simon Cowell, right, he became famous for just insulting people 
right to their face. And he would tell them just the, the things which no one else would say, Simon Cowell would say. He would tell them, you can't sing, you're terrible. He'd tell them, you look horrible. All kinds of very mean things. But here's the thing, the, by far the most cutting, hurtful thing that Simon Cowell used to say to people. I don't know if you remember this. He used to tell people sometimes that they were utterly forgettable. That's the meanest thing you could possibly say to someone. It's the most crushing thing that he could say. Because here's the deal. If you can't sing or you look bad, those are things you can work on. You can go fix those things. But if you are utterly forgettable as a person, it means that you don't matter. It means that you might as well not even exist. So let's go on. Verse 6. We'll read the, the rest of this parable. It says, while the rest uh, seized some of his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. So just like in the prior parable, there are some here who not only are they indifferent to the message, some of them are actively opposed to and even violently opposed to the message. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who in were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So let's kind of recap here. What are the different ways that people responded to the messengers that were sent to them by the master and by the king? There were some who ignored them. Some ignored the message. There were others who were indifferent to the message, meaning that they heard it, they understood it, they just didn't care. There were others who were opposed, even some who were violently opposed. And then, of course, we, we need to see here in this next section, we cannot forget, we cannot fail to see this. There were some who were receptive to the message, and they accepted the invitation of the king to come to the wedding feast. So let me ask you this. In your life, what are the messengers that God has been sending you? Maybe it's a person. Maybe one of the messengers that God has sent into your life is a parent who's been trying to help you to see the truth. Or maybe it's a friend, individual friends in your lives whom God has sent into your life to help you to see the truth and to come to him. Maybe it's a church or maybe it's this church or it's a ministry that God is using as a messenger in your life to speak to you. Many of the old Bible teachers, some of the Puritans, they used to talk about what they called providential messengers providential messengers. A providential messenger is a circumstance in your life, a tragedy or a near tragedy, a frustration or a disappointment or an unfulfilled longing, something that God sends into your life in order to get your attention and call you to himself. Only you can answer that question. Only you know what's going on in your life. But answer that question for yourself. What are the messengers that God has sent into your life? And secondly, what are you doing with them? How are you responding to them? Are you ignoring them? Are you indifferent to them? Are you resisting them or fighting against them? Or are you receptive to what God might want to speak to you through them? You know, part of the message of these parables is to ask us this question. What are the messengers that God has been sending into your life? And secondly, how are you responding to what God wants to speak to you through them? And that brings us to our third point, which is why what you wear could be the most important decision you ever make. Let's read the rest of the parable and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Verse 11. When the king came back in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment on. 
And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him up hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I don't know about you, but that's kind of unexpected ending, right? Like, wow, that was not what I expected. I thought it's just going to be a party. Everybody's having a good time. And then there's this guy, and he's dressed in the wrong clothes, and he gets tied up and executed for wearing the wrong clothes. Now, why in the world did that happen? Now, we've got to get some context in order to understand. But once we get the context, it's very understandable why this happened. Okay, the people who were invited to the party, remember, originally, they didn't want to come. But everything was already prepared, and so the king told his servants, he says, just go out and invite anyone who will come. Just go out to the streets, the street corners, I don't care, the marketplace, anybody who wants to come, anyone who will come is welcome to come to my house and be part of this feast. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand to make this make sense. The custom of that time was this. If you got invited to a fancy party, then the host would provide the clothes for the party, the party clothes. So you would just show up in whatever you're wearing, right? You show up in your overalls, you show up in your sweatpants, whatever you're wearing at the moment, you would just show up and arrive and they would hand you a set of clothes and you would go and change into the wedding clothes. And one of the effects of that was that not only would everybody be well-dressed, but everyone would be wearing the same thing. So there would be this equality that existed in the party. No one would be looking at each other comparing, are my clothes better or worse than somebody else's clothes? And so, but here's the problem. There's this one guy at the party who's not wearing the party clothes. And the king sees this and he gets very angry. Why does he get angry about this? He's angry because this person has rejected the wedding clothes which he provided for him. This guy said, I don't need your wedding clothes. My clothes are good enough, maybe better. And the king says, how dare you come into my house and reject my gift, this thing that I purchased for you. And say that what you have is good enough and you don't need what I'm offering you. That would be a huge insult, a huge disrespect to the king. And that's why the king gets so angry and kicks him out of the house. So what's the point of this story? Let me sum it up for you. Here's how this, what this means for us. You and I have been invited by God, this great king, to a party, a wedding feast, the kingdom of heaven. He has prepared everything, even down to providing the clothing, the covering that we need in order to be acceptable and presentable before him. All we have to do is take it and put it on. This metaphor is, is clear. This clothing, it speaks of what God has done for you in Christ to make you acceptable so that you can come before him. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, it says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalts in God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The, per the person in this story who refuses to accept the gift of the clothing, who insists that his clothes are good enough, is like a person who says that, hey, I'm a good enough person to come before God on my own and get to heaven based on my own goodness, my own righteousness, the way that I've lived, my own record, my own goodness. And notice that this is the person that the king is offended by. It's not the bad person. It says that in the parable, it says that there were both good people and bad people. In other words, your goodness or your badness didn't matter. Anybody could come to this party. The person, the only person who's sent away, the only person who offends the king is not the immoral person even. It's the self-righteous person. That's the person the king is upset with. 
The Bible says that compared to God's holiness, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Now, that's not our bad deeds. That's our good deeds, right? Like compared to the beauty and the glory of God's holiness, even our best actions don't stack up. All of us will one day stand before God. You will one day stand before God. And the most important question is this. When you do stand before God, what are you going to be wearing? What are you going to be wearing when you stand before God? There are three ways in which people will stand before God, three different ways in which they will be clothed and dressed. Number one, some people will come before God and they will stand there naked because they're completely unprepared, right? They've ignored the messengers. They've ignored, they've rejected the messengers maybe, and they will stand before God completely unprepared, naked before God. Others will be like the man in our story who stand before God in the rags of their own righteousness and still others. And I hope you will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, having accepted the free gift of the covering that God provided, purchased for you through Jesus in order to clothe you and cover you so that you could be acceptable and presentable so that you could come before him. This is the message of the gospel. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So let me ask you this. What will you be wearing on that day when you stand before God? In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read this description of what will happen at the end of all things when everything comes to its conclusion. This is what we read there in Revelation 19. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult in Him and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The wedding feast has come and the bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's the deal. You are invited. How will you respond? And not only how will you respond, but secondly, what will you wear? See, it's not about being a good person primarily. It's about accepting what Jesus has done for you. Don't make the mistake of this man in this story thinking that he was good enough as he was, but rather instead receive the grace of God to you. Receive what Jesus did for you to make you acceptable to God. Embrace it, put it on, trust in it, cling to it, rely on it. That's what it means to believe. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came and gave his life in order that you might be saved, in order that you might be forgiven and made right with God. In other words, Jesus came and he said, what's yours is mine, so that what's mine can be yours. He took our sin upon himself so that we could have his righteousness, his relationship with God, so we could have his life. And because of what Jesus did for you and his life and his death and his resurrection, because of what Jesus did for you, God now looks at you and he says, what's mine is yours. Romans 8 verse 32, this incredible thought is given to us. It says this, if God did not spare even his own son, then how will he not along with him also give us all things freely? When you really understand the gospel, 
both the depth of your sin and lostness before God on your own and the height of God's love shown in what he did for you in Jesus by taking your place in death so that you could have life. When you see that, when you understand just how much God loves you, the effect it has on your life is this, is that you say to him, everything I have is yours. All that is mine, I give it to you. What's mine is yours. You're the master anyway. You always have been. I was created by you and I was created for you and everything that I have, it's from you and it's for you. So whatever I have, whether it's my mind, my body, my relationships, my skills, my talents, my finances, whatever it is that I have, I will use it, number one, by your word and number two, for your profit because it was all yours anyway, all along. But I haven't always acknowledged you as the owner there have been many times when I tried to act like I owned the, owned the vineyard. I owned this life, but I will no longer do that. That's what you say when you really understand the gospel. Because you see the love that God has for you and all that he's done for you in Jesus to forgive you and to save you and to give you salvation and hope. He gave it all for you. And when you see that, when you really get it, you will want to say, all that I have is yours. I encourage you to do that today. Would you please stand with me? And let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love for us, shown in the ultimate way by giving your son. And Lord, as we consider this parable and you refer to your son as your son whom you loved, your beloved son, Lord, it makes it all the more poignant. Lord, that you gave everything for us. And Lord, we, we, we ask that you'd help us to see that. We ask that you'd help us to really understand the height of your love for us and saving us from the depth of our lostness. And Lord, thank you for that love for us. And I pray that as we really understand it, that we would also come and we would say, Lord, because you have done this for me, what's mine is yours. All of it I give to you. And I live for you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.